My name is Scott, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for having me uh, to your conference and, and allowing me to participate. And uh, I just can't tell you what a great time I've had. Uh, you're, you're great. This is a great function. The Al-Anon participation, the Al-Akid and Al-Ateen participation, uh, the feeling in the room, the, the, the feeling, you know, the, the speakers are just extraordinary. I want to thank all the other speakers and thank the committee. Uh, I want to welcome all the new people to AA, and I just, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude. Uh, and uh, if, you, if you're new, I'm sure you're thrilled to death for me. Uh, I, uh, uh, I know that when I was new, I was very happy for people who were having a good time in AA. And uh, I, <laughs> I would sit and listen to people talk about the new car and the new house, and I'd think, well, maybe, uh, maybe you go home tonight and uh, maybe your house will blow up. Maybe a blow up. Maybe a new car will blow up. Maybe your new wife will blow up. And we'll see how spiritual you are next week. Um, <laughs> I like to welcome uh, the a lady with seven days. I, I always love a countdown because the w person with the uh, the least amount of time wins, and uh, they always look like they've been voted most attractive man on their cell block. You know, they kind of have that look. No, you won. Everyone voted for you, and uh, kind of you, <laughs> you sort of don't want to pick up the award, kind of uh, like that. So I. Uh, I, I want to uh, I want to welcome you, and I don't know of any other uh, society that does that, that welcomes the newcomer the way do, we do because our life depends upon it. No big thing. We just get to die if we don't. And um, uh, I uh, um, I'm from Southern California. It's it's 4,000 degrees below zero outside right now. It's uh, uh, I went I got Dell picked me up. There was liquid oxygen pouring off the hood of his car. It, lo it looked like the space shuttle before it takes off, and, um, and I'll never breed again. What can I tell you? Just... Not that I don't have, I, I'm bred out, so uh, it's okay. Save me some elective surgery, and uh... <laughs> um... <laughs> and if you knew, I'd like to welcome the AA. If you're a drug addict, I'd like to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're a dope fiend, which is somehow worse than any of us, I'd like to welcome you to AA. And uh, just suggest that you stick around and catch the dreaded alcoholism. Uh, uh, there's, a <laughs> uh, there's a new group of people I'm very excited about. I don't know if they're coming in out here, but they're coming in LA. I'd like to welcome any tweakers here tonight, if there are any tweakers around. No? They stay quick for a while. You know, I like them. Uh, every part of their face is moving in a different direction. And... Uh, they're wearing their clothes out from the inside, and I, I, I like them. I like them. I'm not making fun of you. Man, I'm coming close, but I'm not making fun of you. And I just want to welcome you to AA, and again, suggest that you catch alcoholism. I caught alcoholism in AA meetings. I did not have alcoholism when I came to AA. So I, I know what you mean. If you're not an alcoholic, I was not an alcoholic when I got here. Um, first of all, I'm Jewish, and Jews do not drink because it might dull the pain. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you just, uh, <laughs> you don't want to squander any agony opportunity that presents itself. And funny thing is, one of the first guys that saved my life in Alcoholics Anonymous was a guy named John Flynn. I was a couple of weeks sober, and he raised his hand, and he said, I'm an ex-Catholic, which means I do not believe in God, and I'm therefore positive God is going to come kill my ass for feeling that way. And I said, I'm going to go sit with him. Because <laughs> I had been introduced to an Old Testament God that I would not be caught in a dark alley with. Absolutely not. So uh, um, I, uh, I, I can't tell you how profound it is for me to be involved in Alcoholics Anonymous that uh, invites and incorporates Al-Anon participation and Alatine and, and anticipation. It's such an emotional deal for me. And there are, you know... It's one of those great examples where I don't know if I've made amends sometimes, but I know that AA is. I know that this is why the traditions work in my life, like the steps work in my life, because organizationally, Al Alcoholics Anonymous does stuff that I don't know if I've done or can do personally. It, it, it's, it's an incredible feeling of being taken care of, an incredible feeling of, of participating, of just being one of the drunks. I, I love talking. I, I probably wouldn't do it if I didn't like it a lot, but I feel it's really overrated. I, I, it's, it, it really is. And, and I'm going to tell my story tonight because 
what the hell else am I going to do? I mean, I, I could hold forth on AA overall, give you the big picture. Um, but uh, I, I'm, uh, all, <laughs> all I've got is, is my story. And, and um, I, uh, I was uh, brought up in the Bronx in, in New York City. Uh, oh, yeah, she's here with the Witness Protection Program, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, you are. You forgot. <laughs> Damn. I like when I go to Montana and like Vito is there trying to look normal, you know? Yeah, I love the prairie. It's, it's gorgeous. I lived here my whole life. I'm a prairie guy. <laughs> and my family is and was nuts. They're completely psycho. You could throw a net over any constellation of them at any time. My wife never believed me about them until she met them. My mother threw an engagement party for us, and my Aunt Rose came and wore her wig backwards. <laughs> and it had a bun on it, so the bun was out front. Man, I wish I was lying about this. I really do. Um, <laughs> I had an uncle uh, named uh, Izzy Redman, and he was one of the top ten welterweights of the world. He was a, a prize fighter. He was owned by the Purple Gang out of, uh, out of Detroit. And, and, um, he was uh, fighting in Atlanta, Georgia in 1939. He was concerned about anti-Semitism, so he changed his name from Izzy Redman to Izzy Goldberg so that no one would know he was Jewish. And he, <laughs> he was positive that they would think he was German. Now, I, I just want to tell you, this is not the kind of thing you go and brag down at the bar about. I'm a moron. I'm from a long line of morons, you know. Um, uh, <laughs> if you got anything for free in my family, it was stolen. And uh, I had an uncle who was a welder who used to, get <laughs> he used to get free bales of steel wool. Sure, here's your paycheck and your complimentary bale of steel wool. And his uh, wife took a decorating course and made throw pillows and filled all of the throw pillows with the plentiful and cheap steel wool. That stuff works its way through on you after a while. So when, when, <laughs> when, you, <laughs> when you were at their house, if you looked at the room, Everybody was moving a little bit. You know, the, the, whole, the whole room was like a pulsing, breathing, living thing. <laughs> and there was uh, chronic institutionalization and suicide attempts and uh, mental and physical abuse. And uh, if you're new here, uh, I, I thank God I'm here to tell you that, that my family had absolutely nothing to do with it. I'm not telling you that they weren't nuts. They, uh, they're nuts. And I'm not telling you that I didn't get hurt a lot. I got hurt a lot, and I'm not telling you that I didn't have to do a lot of stuff to make that okay. I'm telling you that you're drunk. If you have alcoholism, if you really have alcoholism, if you have a strange physical reaction to, and if you're special and, and you're a drug addict, try some controlled crack smoking. You know, uh, <laughs> just uh, fill your mouth up with crack smoke and say, I'm not in the mood, and blow it out. And uh, hats will fill the air. Uh, but if you have an allergic reaction to alcohol and it's coupled with um, some fascinating thinking, it's referred to as alcoholic thinking. In, in meetings of AA, it's the source of a lot of mirth at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And I love it. I love reasons to drink. I collect them. I have a friend named Larry who the first time he ever read our book, he read the first page of chapter four, which contains a sentence which basically says, facing an alcoholic death or a spiritual life is not always an easy decision to make. Very tough decision. Die in a pool of my own urine, spiritual life. Very, very tough. What am I going to do? Um, and when he read that sentence, he said to himself, well, how bad an alcoholic death are we talking about here? <laughs> That's not a normal reaction to that sentence. But I don't have a normal reaction. I still don't have a normal reaction. At 16 years sober, I don't. Two years ago, I'm 14 years sober. I need hand surgery. Surgery on my hand. Doctor says to me, Mr. Edmund, you're going to need uh, general anesthetic. I said, oh, general anesthetic, oh man. Normal people don't get excited about general anesthetic. No normal person gets excited about it. And I'll tell you why. You're generally anesthetized for it. You're asleep during it. But you see, I know something about general anesthetic. When they hit you with it, they say count backwards from 100. And you go 100, 99, <laughs> I love 99. And it sounds like some of you love 99, too. <laughs> they don't love 99 at the Lions Club. You say it at the Lions Club, they go, what the hell is he talking about? Hey, hey, guys are going, oh, 99! 
I found out last year I might have to get the sur- same surgery on this other hand, and I'm still going, oh. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. I leave out the middle part. It's called the surgery. <laughs> I leave out the surgery. I leave out the sutures, the blood, the pain, the swelling, the recovery. That's gone. I just say 99. <laughs> I was sponsoring this guy for about 15 minutes. And uh, he... Uh, <laughs> He was living with his wife. He, had a, he was a male prostitute, and he had a gay lover. And he called me to tell me he drank. And I said, oh, why? And uh, he, uh, he, he said, I caught my wife cheating on me. <laughs> now, I, <laughs> now I, unfortunately, I understand that. I understand that. I understand that's the product of one of two processes. Either that was, boom, an occasional hunter inspiration. Just, boom, fully cut cloth. He had to come up with something. Back there it was, like a, just a pearl. She cheated on me. Or that was the product of weeks in the rat's maze. Weeks on the hamster wheel. Weeks, hours and hours of cutting and pasting reality to move the whole world. You've got to move the whole world so it can drop in slot by slot by slot. Okay, I know, I love it. I know I'm a hooker with a beeper. And I'm going to get put the bitch cheat on me. I'm out of here. You've got to move the whole world. And I understand that completely because if you get in between me and the drink, I'm either going to walk through you or I'm going to walk around you. So I grew up in this nutty family. And you see, if, I have alcoholism. So I've got this weird thinking that drives me to take a drink I can't stop taking because I have this weird physical reaction to it. And then I started rearranging my life to accommodate the alcoholism. And I developed this spiritual tapeworm that left me hollow and insane and alone. And uh, I uh, fell in with a bunch of guys in the Bronx who were a bunch of very bright young men who were stealing cars and smashing them into each other. They're having demo derbies. Uh, I, I uh, um, was being brought into this gang. I was surrounded by the circle of guys. This guy, George, was bringing me in. And he said, look, we just do, uh, because they drank, you know. And he said, look, we only steal Chevy Biscaynes and Fairlanes because the, uh, uh, the ignition's on the column and there's off, on, and lock. Knock out the fly window, get in the car. If it's on off, you can put your house key in and turn it on and drive away. If it's on lock, shine it, get into the car. I was trying to make my bones, so I looked around and I said, on. He said, then someone's in the car, you moron. <laughs> and uh, I, I, <laughs> I failed gang 101. And uh, I went across the street to the hippies where there was no forms to fill out, no test at all. They, uh, I, they, I was very successful there. And, um, and I'm going to talk about drugs for a bit now, and I don't mean to offend anybody. Uh, Henry, could, could you, Herb, could you raise your hand? Herb asked me to come talk here a couple of years ago. So if this really upsets you, please tell Herb. Please tell Herb. Because I swear to you, I didn't come all this way and think, I think I can come to South Dakota and really piss some people off. I, I really didn't. It's just my story. And Herb knew it was my story before he asked. So please. Um, one time a guy came up to me after I talked in San Francisco and he tapped me on the shoulder. He said, how come you hate AA? And I thought, I don't hate AA. I hate you. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a... <laughs> I'm okay on AA. You're kind of pissing me off right now, but I'm really okay on Alcoholics Anonymous. And the reason why I'm talking about it is because I used drugs to try to avoid catching alcoholism. You know? And I didn't want to be an alcoholic as a young man growing up in the, the early 60s in the Bronx. I didn't want to be, so I started smoking pot, and I uh, want to welcome all the pot smokers here tonight. You remember WOW, right? WOW. And right after WOW usually came... What? Wow, what? Wow, what? Wow, what? Wow, what? Watching a pot smoker is like watching a dog try to run on linoleum. There, there's, there's like a lot of activity, but no movement. They can't get a claw in the rug, you know? I uh, overcame my ar- uh, marijuana problem with uh, pills. I triumphed over pills uh, with cocaine. Uh, cocaine is an excellent drug. It's particularly good for sex if you enjoy sex from the Neolithic period. <laughs> and uh, I kicked that gall darn cocaine with heroin. Heroin's a very dark, complicated, artistic drug. Then you cross a little line and become a vomiting pig. It's just a little hop, skip, and a jump. <laughs> and uh, booze was on the table every day. And uh, shortly after I, I started this cycle, and I was about uh, one of the other reasons that I did not have alcoholism when I came to AA was I had been in psychotherapy for 18 years. I, I was going to be dead, but I was going to understand. <laughs> and uh, I have absolutely no beef against psychotherapy. I've used therapy many times in sobriety in a very t- wonderful way. I, our book says if you need a doctor, go get one. 
Boy, that's really unclear, isn't it? Um, uh, I have no malpractice insurance. I don't tell people uh, what to do in that realm. My colossal blunder with therapy is I was trying to treat it to, I was trying to use it to treat my alcoholism, which is like showing up at a gunfight with a knife once a week. I mean, if you really have alcoholism. Let's see, I'm anxious. Why, Scott? Well, I sharpened the hypodermic needle on the back of a matchbook striker this afternoon, and I sucked some heroin up through a fluffed-up cigarette filter and injected it, and I'm really anxious about that. <laughs> what are we going to do about that? Talk about it? Are you going to talk about that? The conceit, the, 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 the idea with most conventional therapy is uncover, discover, and, re and, and unravel. Free associate, get treatment, shine light on a neurosis. A neurosis is a bad resolution for anxiety. That's what it is. Pathology is something else, but a neurosis, a real bad problem that you go to therapy for, is an unfortunate, an unsatisfying resolution for anxiety. Sound familiar at all? My solutions are worse than my problems. I get that, okay? But here's the deal. My alcoholism generates anxiety at such a horrific rate, it would take a panel of therapists 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just to catch, just to catch. It, it can't potential can't stand up to the alcoholism. That conventional use of therapy for my alcoholism was worse than useless. It was dangerous because I was doing And um, I was in my early 20s. I had, uh, was in a cycle where I was using hypodermics. I was hitchhiking down from the Bronx to Manhattan. My aunt and uncle on the highway put me in the back of the car and my father just uh, had a massive stroke and he was taken to the hospital. I was taken to the hospital. I was loaded. Why? Because I was awake. And uh, and I couldn't be there for my old man the night he died. My father was a sweetheart. My father never made more than $10,000 a year. My brother and I never went to school with ripped clothing and never missed meals. My last year out there, I made over $80,000 in my father. And that night, I was such a pig, such an animal, that I couldn't even go into his room and give by. I couldn't because I, could, I didn't burp to. I had holes in my arms, and I was, I was an embarrassment and a failure as a man, a son, and a brother. And I had to do some quick work. I had to do some really fast work. It happened. It was unimaginable to me. And I found out pretty quick. <clears throat> the reason that had happened was because of needles and heroin. And all I had to do was never put a needle in my arm again. And I would not be the guy who couldn't show up the night that his father died. I wouldn't be that guy. I'd be another guy, but I wouldn't be that guy. And um, my whole life, I have uh, suffered from chronic success. I have been failing upward my entire life. Uh, I had some incredibly lofty dreams uh, as a kid growing up in New York, and by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had reached or surpassed. By the time I got to AA, I had a book on the bestseller list. I had acted in a Broadway play. I directed a television show and a film. I had had my own theater in New York. I had done all of these things one time, because when I'd leave, they'd move the business so I couldn't find it again. <laughs> and, um, and when I finally took the alcoholic test, and if you're new here, we do have a test, called an inventory. It's a pass-pass situation. All you have to do is do the inventory. And I saw the picture of my alcoholism. I saw that, and you know, it, it's funny. Our book doesn't say write a little, read a little, write a little, read a little. It says if you can write the whole thing down, if you can write the whole thing and sit down with somebody and, and read the whole thing, you might be so devastated by the scope of your illness. You might be so crushed under the weight of it that you might be deflated of ego at depth enough to stick around. I'm resentful at them for watching me resent them. And I've had sex with all of them, right? <laughs> and, and, I'm, <coughs> and I'm scared of all of them. <coughs> if you're new, what does this have to do with alcoholism? It is alcoholism. Fears, the defects of character that facilitate them. I mean, resentments, the defects of character that facilitate them. Fears and sexual misconduct are the hub of the soul sickness that pluck us out of the reach of the help of well-meaning physicians and oh God, that day that I really read it and really heard that line in our book, if you ask an alcoholic why they've had a drink, despite the misery and attendant suffering that follows time, and they don't blow you off and they stick with you, odds are they have no more idea than you. And it hit me in the bottom of my feet. It was a puzzle I didn't even know I was suffering from. I know I had said why a million times, but my scramble to come up with an answer always wiped out the question. <clears throat> And uh, I was acting in a Broadway show shortly after my father's death, and this new usherette with long brown hair walked in. And I didn't say hello to her. I took one look at her. 
I walked back into the dressing room and got up on a chair and said, if anybody talks to the new usherette, I'll break all the bones in your hands and feet. And we celebrated 25 years of marriage last April uh, 19th. <clears throat> I still haven't talked to her, but I'm building up to it. I swear to God. We're going to break the ice really soon. <laughs> we had a great time. Great, great time. One of the misquoted, most, for me, misquoted lines in the big book of AA is sometimes you'll hear people say, my worst day in here is better than my best day out there. No. <laughs> no, I had a great time out there. I really had a great time. What the book says in that section of chapter 3 is, it's, it's talking about this guy who says, I wouldn't trade my worst day in here for my best day out there because I won't trade this way of life. I won't settle for 99. I would have settled for 99 any day of the week. That's as good as it got. Give me a nickel today instead of a quarter tomorrow, bring that nickel on because I'm a loser. <laughs> on the Mount Olympus of losers. Thanks, I'll have less because I can have it now. <clears throat> And uh, Nancy and I had a great time. We had a great time. I was acting on Broadway and we're living in New York, very exciting city. We didn't know we were just a couple of dogs running on a linoleum. We, we, uh, we were making a go and we had some great times. We had our son Micah, our beautiful son Micah, and he was really welcomed into the world. Really, we were surrounded by friends and family. There was a ton of phone calls. He was really welcomed in our community, which is the way it should happen. And then Nancy started becoming very troubled. Uh, from prolonged exposure to me. She, she became very sick. Uh, one day I came home and I, 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 we had these 32-ounce iced tea tumblers and I popped the cork on a bottle of wine and emptied the entire bottle of wine into this ice tumbler and I turned around and my wife was giving me her uh, pre-Alanon rat face. What? <laughs> what are you doing? I'm having a glass of wine. Can't a man have a glass of wine in his own home? We became so sick that at one got time uh, point, a guy lent us his car and we sold his car. <laughs> I will never forget this guy's voice on the phone as long as... <laughs> you sold my car? <laughs> I lent you my car. That's like house-sitting for someone and they come back and you're in escrow, you know? And the, <laughs> the alcoholic life becomes the only normal one, you know? We didn't have rent. No, no, really. And I looked in my wife's eyes and I said, I am so sick of being an irresponsible kid. Let us, let's do the right thing for once. Let's not borrow money. Let's stand on our own two feet. Let's sell the car. <laughs> and my wife looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, let's do. It's really funny. Years later, I was talking at a meeting and Nancy's sponsor was saying, we were, we were in the program a while. Nancy's sponsor's in the front row. And, Nancy, and I shared this meeting and I see her sponsor... And later we're talking about it. She said, you sold it. <laughs> it was fun. That was fun. <laughs> um, we became very, very troubled. This is where we wound up. We started on Broadway, and this is where we wound up. This was a good, good morning in the Redmond home. Before I, right before I got sober, I had had a, an accident, and I went, and the doctor, the, uh, had me a doc doctor said, Mr. Redmond, you have high blood pressure. You're going to have to lose some weight. And I said, you know what, I would like to, but I drink alcohol and smoke marijuana before I go to bed every night, so I'm not going to be. <laughs> and the doctor said, why don't I prescribe some medication for you? And I said, what a country. And, um, <laughs> and uh, he, he prescribed chloral hydrate for me. Sound that usually a crowd reserves for a, a baby who's doing something cute. There's about 10 people in, ah, oh, for, the, for the drug. Chloral hydrate's a knockout drop, it's a Mickey. It's what you see those 30s films where they put a white powder into an unruly sailor's drink and he drinks it and falls back like a piece of masonite. That's chloral hydrate. And I love these pills. I love, love, love my knockout drops. So Nancy comes home. I'm taking handfuls of knockout drops and I'm standing in the hall slamming my arms into the wall to keep myself awake to enjoy my knockout drop. Because you don't want to waste a perfectly good Mickey. So I'm, I'm eating handfuls of these things, whacking party, body parts into the wall until I just eh, seize, keel over. Now I'm going to bed. I can't wake up to go to the bathroom so, because i got too much Mickey in me. So I'm, I'm now incontinent like the rest of the other 33-year-old men in America. And, um, and one night I got up and wet the wall. And, uh, and everyone was excited the next morning. Nancy was bustling around the kitchen. He wet the wall. He's headed towards the bathroom. It's progress, not perfection, you know? It's like, <laughs> that was a Wheaties morning in the Redmond home. And I remember she said to me, yeah, yeah, go Scooter. 
Tonight the wall, tomorrow the toilet to a grown man. <clears throat> Our son Jesse was born two years and nine months after Micah, and uh, we were, uh, uh, there was nobody at the hospital, no flowers, no nine months, and it wasn't because people didn't love us. We pressed ourselves on the people hard. So we were isolated, you know. And uh, that night a doctor called me, and Jesse had a heart problem birth. He was, uh, had transferred to Kip near the heart doctor from a big, big hospital. And I said to this doctor I've never met before, you know what, I'd love to come down son. And this doctor, who I didn't know, said, my address, my husband's home. I, there was no way for me to accept this line for me. I mean, that night, I couldn't do it. That night, our, our circumstance was to me. This is when you're supposed to be in the, in the middle of your community, and we connected from taking that walk to the Drake. Because it doesn't matter who you are or what you are. It doesn't matter if you're my wife, my lover, my buddy, my bride, my child, my dreams, my job. If you get in between me and the drink, you will either vanish or you will become paper mache. I either walk, I have to walk through you or I have to walk around you. If I have to walk around you, I have to walk bigger and bigger circles because it hurts too much to see you and my life makes this horrible, hollow sound when you hit it. Nothing. And if you're my child and you get in the way, how much vanishing can a baby bear before the baby believes? And in our active alcoholic home, our children were left with two basic options. Become pointlessly aggressive en route to a goal that never gets achieved or throw in the towel. What's the use anyhow? It's a complete mirror of what's described in the second and third chapter of our book. What's the use anyhow? I'll stop after the sixth one. How did it happen again? That, that thinking, that template of thinking is mirrored in, in the warped lives of blameless wives and children. And if I had been able to appreciate that on the day that I walked into AA at all, I used to have this phrase I used to say to my wife, I, and that's the way it was for me. And um, Bill, in his story, he describes this point in his life. He's dragging his mattress down from the upper stories so he doesn't jump out. He's opening his medicine cabinet and staring at poison, cursing himself for not having the guts to take it. He's waiting until his hard-working wife comes home, leaves the room so he can grab a few bucks, steal them out of her pocket. He's an unwelcome hanger-on at the places he used to be successful. He's going from deli to deli to get credit. And after he describes this disgusting, tiny, pathetic life, then he lowers the boom. He says, little were we to know this was going to continue to happen to us from that horrible night of Jesse's birth. I mean, what a miserable thing to, to say the, the horrible night of your childbirth. From that horrible night, it was going to be three years of it getting just worse. And if you hear any appreciable amount of time, you will see men and women walk into AA with bottoms that will make your hair. Well, obviously, they're done. Never happen again. Can't drink after this. And if they, if they don't use the program of action outlined in our book, after some amount of time, they will get on with the business of dying. They'll come back in without an arm. Then they'll get pissed off again, come in, and they'll come in until they're like a pissed off stump, you know. And uh, uh, the, the power of it is absolutely remarkable. <clears throat> um, by the time I came in AA on April 22nd, 3, Micah was diagnosed as functioned up. He was reading and writing years below his grade level, even though they were cut off from the society of other he was so scared all the time and become so neurotic, his, the fear was so disruptive, he couldn't put small tasks together. Jesse was three and was so injured, he was playing these war games that he couldn't stop playing. And he was pretending he was a robot, but he couldn't set stuff, but he couldn't pull out. And the feeling afterwards was that the war in his head was just better than the war at home. At least he got the fashion that one. And the thing about the robot killed me because the feeling there was that it just was better to be made out of metal. It just hurt too much to be a person. But we didn't, hadn't even started to catch the disease of alcohol. And on April 22nd, 1985, uh, I crossed the line I swore I would never cross again. This is the condition of my family. My, my life had run out between my fingers like a handful of water over and over. And uh, on April 22nd, 1985, I crossed the line. I swore I would never cross again. I put a needle in my 13 years. After 13 years of not wanting to be the guy who couldn't show up the night his old man died, I put a needle in my arm again. Why? Why not? It was time. I had no mental defense against it. I called my therapist of record, my first Jungian therapist, and he said to me the exact same thing that Carl Jung said to the man who 12-stepped the man who 12-stepped Bill Wilson. I didn't know it. I want to tell you, once I read it in our literature, it made me feel great. 
But Carl Jung said to Roland Hazard, I can't help you, you're doomed. And that's what this therapist said. What a blessing. What an incredible, humble thing for this guy to say. He could have said, come on up and let's talk about it. Oh my God. You could have another speaker here tonight if we had talked about it one more day. He can't help you. The only thing I could suggest is you attend a meeting of Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, or you have you institutionalized. Now, again, I don't know why I didn't go and get institutionalized on most other mornings. Let's go. That's an uninterrupted source of narcotics for a period of time. That's better than dental surgery. Dental surgery, you only get one script. The nut hut, can, you can really milk that for a while. That's a chance to be with my people, colorful and adventurous people. Nervous, but, you know, my people. Why I went to that AA meeting, I have absolutely no idea. I actually went to one AA meeting. I came home and poured myself a glass of wine, and my wife said, Honey, are you supposed to drink in AA? And I said, Sweetheart, these people aren't fanatics. <laughs> you can have a hearty glass of Chablis. Uh, I woke up at seven, 5 o'clock in the morning to go to a 7 a.m. Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I put my best clothes on. I got a bad check to write you, and I went down to the ANA to pee in a cup and get on the mailing list, and I knew absolutely nothing about Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to a place called Unit A in the deep San Fernando Valley right next to a Polynesian-themed bar called the Tonga Hut. I am positive if Satan is on earth, he is manifested in the large carved wooden heads in Polynesian-themed bars. And I walked in and I took one look around this room and I said, oh my goodness, Alcoholics Anonymous, how lame is this? This is beyond lame. This is beyond church, beyond synagogue. This is some plateau of lameness I never even imagined was available to me. Alcoholics Anonymous. And it looked like the room was like the product of about 200 years of inbreeding. It was unbelievable, you know? There were like twins, identical twins carving their initials on each other's feet, it seemed to me, you know? You know? And everything was a miracle, miracle. I'm a miracle. You're a miracle. The furniture and coffee are miracles too. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm waiting for the Jew hunt to start. I know that's going to happen any minute, right? Come on, Jaime, strap these antlers on. Poke him with a stick. Knock his beanie off. Always wanted to run a big buck Jew. Hmm. <laughs> Then they send over the unsolicited AA information guy. You know him. Lila was talking about him today. He's got a belt buckle large enough to serve a whole fish on. And uh, he's got one tooth with a cavity in it. And uh, <laughs> do I want what you've got? No. 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 But thanks for spitting on me, Clem. Say hello to Martha. I'll bring my own bib overalls next week. You don't have to issue me a pair. And I know the arts and crafts are starting, so when are we going to hook a rug? I know that's going to happen any minute, right? Man, I thought I was dead. Absolutely dead. So I went back there every morning for a year. And those people pried my jaws open and breathed life back into me, and I'll never, ever be able to repay um, I wouldn't have known a step if it bit me on the ass in public. I just kept coming back to the A. And um, one of the most confusing and hurtful things to me in my first in Alcoholics Anonymous, my wife uh, reached out to me and I went on family groups. She says she always remembers when, because at her first meeting she raised her hand and said, my name's Nancy and my husband's 37 days sober, and the old-timers went, <laughs> we'll be talking to you after the meeting. I think that might have been the last time I came up at a meeting. And uh, I felt so lucky, and I admired my wife so much for doing what she was doing. And it, one of the most hurtful and confusing things to me is now and again I would go to an AA meeting and I'd hear Alan on. I'm not talking about good-natured jokes. We tell good-natured jokes about... Alcoholics. I'm talking about mean-spirited jokes, and it would confuse me and hurt me because I'd sit in my seat and go, and until I stuck around long enough to understand that the people who were doing that were just hurtful and ignorant, although I, I judge no man, because uh, I'm too spiritually developed. <laughs> but really, until I really uh, uh, found out that these people had no functioning knowledge of the work done in the Al-Anon family groups, it was very hurtful and debilitating for me. So if you're doing that on a public level, then that's your vote that it's okay to do it. I, I used to have all the votes. I've been vo whittled down to one vote by good sponsorship. And um, my vote is that it's not okay. My vote is that there might be some... I think we should do everything we can to win. <clears throat> and uh, again, I'll, I'll say one more thing and then I'll move on. But if, if you can imagine, can you imagine going to a meeting where people are saying mean-spirited, 
ignorant things about our chest. I'd want to go to that person and I, wanted, I would want to say, oh, you. if you only knew what you were talking about, if you only knew about the work that we do here. So the next time that comes up or if you entertain the idea, please, please give it some thought. And um, I saw it in my wife. She says she saw it in me and I saw it in her. She got this incredible sponsor who's her sponsor today, the sponsor Ruby. And we would go to their house and, and, and we had these psycho rules for our kids. I mean, just psychotic because we couldn't control anything. So my kids weren't allowed to eat sugar, weren't allowed to watch TV and weren't allowed to curse. But in the morning, she'd feed them granola and put them in the car with me, Dr. Death. <laughs> and say, hope you live, boys. Lots of luck. Hope you make it back. <laughs> so they'd go to Ruby's house, and Ruby would, like, give him a bowl of M&M's, sit him down in front of the love boat, turn the love boat on, and, and the guys just, the boys loved it. They loved it. And Ruby would say to Nancy, stop helping your kids. You're killing them. Stop it. Step away from the child, is basically <laughs> what we're saying. And her, <laughs> her, her husband, Milton, who, who has been sober a long, long time, called the boys over one day, and excuse my, I'm going to use one bad word. He called the, well, actually, I've already used one. I'm going for two now. Um, he used the B word. And uh, he called the boys over, and he bent down when boys, and he said, boys, you're beautiful. <laughs> and the boys went, thank God, we suspected, but now it's been confirmed. Oh, my God, this is great. This is great. He cursed, and it's true. <laughs> and R Ruby's been giving my sons five bucks on their birthday their whole life. They, they're 24 and 20 now. They still get the five, and uh, they love Ruby. They love Ruby. My sons have received 16 birthday gifts, appropriate birthday gifts, on the day of their birthday. Not once in 16 years have they received the day-after radioactive gift from the only place that would take a hot check from them. Here's some drywall, boys. Uh, all the kids are loving the drywall. It's Pokemon drywall. And I stuck around AA for six months and enjoyed the gift of step none. <laughs> you know the gift of step none. Nothing. <laughs> and I was doing nothing and receiving the gift of nothing. And, um, and, uh, uh, and, and the tapeworm was starting to eat my brain. The alien was eating my brain. And I saw it in Nancy. She says she saw it in me. And in six months, I had seen the AA drill hundreds and hundreds of times. Guys came in. Gals came in, did the work. Changed, they came in, didn't do the work, got sick, got sicker, got to the podium, shared their gift with us, or shared their ass right out of the door, or stayed here and became columns of human sewage and sexual predators, although I judge no man. And uh, <laughs> all I have to do is say that one more time, and it's true. And um, so I knew I was going to drink, and I asked the guy to sponsor me. Great guy, real happy guy, great guy, still a great guy. And uh, he made sure I had done some reading from the big book of AA. He invited me over to his house. And he read chapter five to me, and on the way through, he took me through the first two steps. We reached step three, got on our knees and said a prayer, which I felt was embarrassing and unnecessary, but I did it anyway. And then he went back and he gave me instructions on how to do a fourth step in the big book of AA, and I stopped feeling like I was stealing someone's seat here. Anytime I go to a step study and anyone begins their sharing with the following sentence, well, I've never worked this step, but... I always think, then, but what in God's name will you be talking about now? I, 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 don't, I, I, just, I don't quite get that. But again, I, I, don't, I don't judge anybody, so it's not a problem for me. Um, <laughs> but I had been going to step studies and, step, and, and book studies. I had nothing to talk about. I wasn't doing anything. And, and I started getting involved. And uh, I took three months and did my, third, my fourth step and went back and read it to my sponsor at nine months of sobriety. I did step six and seven for the first time, uh, which had become my template for my working relationship with God. And, uh, and then I, it came time to do my eight-step list. And I try to share this anytime I talk, because it's simply the greatest single reading of step eight I've ever heard in my life. And I heard it when I was brand new in sobriety. I was a couple of weeks sober. I was at my first home group. And uh, it was this men's group, besides a morning meeting I was going to. And there was a guy there with a hospital group. He had never read chapter five before. He had hospital plastic on. His name was Nino. He had a heavy New York accent. I'd never seen him before, and I've never seen him since. It was 16 years ago. And he got up in front of that men's group, read chapter 5 for the first time, and got up to step 8 and read, made a list of all those we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Jesus Christ! <laughs> you know what's in here? Man, it killed me. It killed me. Because it's the only thing I saw in the steps. I didn't see anything else. Not that money, not those people... 
look, I would not have taken that much money if I knew I had to give it back. <laughs> no way, no way! Not the car! The car. If you're new, don't worry about it. It's eight steps from where you are anyway. And eight's not even the annoying one. It's nine. <laughs> eight's just the approach pattern, for God's sake. <laughs> Came time to do my eight-step list, and my wife and my kids and my pop had to go down there, and I didn't know what I was going to do. My dad was dead, and I couldn't go to the grave and talk to him, and I couldn't write a letter, and it scared the crap out of me. I wish that had worked, because then I was terrified it was never going to go away. And uh, plenty of guys I sponsor write a letter and go to the grave, and that's, it, it, it really works. And I've, I know a lot of my dear friends, it, really, it didn't work for me. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I didn't know what I was going to do about Nancy and the boys. What am I going to do? Sorry, honey. <laughs> I, I don't think so. See, boys, I'm really sorry you've had no life. And, I, and my sponsor, I don't know if he did this with all the guys he sponsors. I don't really care. He did it for me. He refused to tell me how to make amends. He just refused to. He said, do your job in Alcoholics Anonymous and let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Just do your job. So I started doing my job in AA. I started doing lame, lame stuff. I started spending a couple of bucks and buying my kid the lunchbox he wanted and an okay pair of jeans. I, I wound up uh, uh, being a, a, a classroom dad and running a, uh, my kid could barely read. So I went and I read a, ran a reading group at school. I started taking a few booze bucks and used it to buy him a mitt. And the boys were really hurt, and I had to do a thing that just scared me and I didn't want to do. I had to go into school and sit down with the people and say, you know, my child has been a problem, and he's been very ill, and he's been ill because I've been very and can you help us? And I got to tell you, never once, not one time did anyone say no. They said, of course, we have all these resources. Let's test the boys. They tested them and they tested troubled. They needed help. So the special ed lady took us aside and said, get them into music, get them into sports. Let's see what we can do with this small motor stuff. We'll do big motor stuff. Maybe that'll impact it. So that's when I went out and bought them the mitt and showed up and coached flag football and did that stuff, that lame stuff. You know, I went to my first Little League game. My wife shows up and looks over at the stands and falls down laughing. There's all the people in the stands and there's me in the sun psycho, just nuts, you know, in the sun alone, you know, going up and down two hat sizes, you know, just, I'm here, I'm here, I'm doing my job, I'm doing my job, I'm here. The kids were thrilled to see me, you know. Look, Mr. Redmond's going to blow up, man, look, look. <laughs> it took me a couple of years for the voices to diminish in volume and number to just go and be at my serenity station, to sit in the stands with the people, to just be a dad in the stands. And I did it for a couple of years, and then one year Jesse received... What I believe is one of the great compliments any human being can receive on the planet. He was intentionally walked. Doesn't get a whole lot better than that. If you're not a fan, that means they're scared of you and they want to get to the weenie behind you. And Jesse didn't want to be lame, you don't want to be a geek, you know, so he just laid his bat down, didn't jump up and down, trotted up the first baseline, and on the way up the first baseline, he turns to me at my sobriety station and he just shoots me just a little bit of stuff. You don't want to be a lame, it's, not, it's the old man, don't spoil him. And um, I could have missed the whole thing. I could have missed the whole thing. And I'm not telling you that my son got intentionally walked because I'm sober. I'm telling you I was at my sobriety station because I was sober. And I've been with enough guys who were drunk the day of their kid's birthday who I've got to tell about the day my kid got walked. I was there. And, um, you know, I never felt like a grown man my whole life. I used to stand next to guys 10 years younger than me and say, I wonder what it's like to be grown up. What a crappy way to live. You're a dollar short and a day late every day. You're never in your life. You're almost having a life. I didn't know that that would make me a grown man. I didn't know that making my bed would be a grown man. Nancy and I were just shattered. You know, I don't even know how to make my bed. I'm not clean. I can't clean my house. A grown man ought to clean the house, right? But no, somewhere in the back of my twisted noodle, I think that a certain amount of housework should equal a certain amount of sex, right? I think there should be like conversion tables on the back of cleaning products of housework to sex. So I'm not cleaning the house to live in a clean house like a proud man. I'm cleaning the house and I'm finished and I'm going, I'm finished, honey. <laughs> and she's going, yeah, more than you'll ever know. So always, anytime I share that, I see a couple of guys who go, good idea. 
I smell a marketing opportunity here. <laughs> Hell of an infomercial. And uh, <laughs> um, I was sober a couple of years in my... I was making my son's lunch, and I said to my son, Micah, what would you like on your hot dog? And he said, I want mustard, onions, and lettuce. And I said, lettuce? He said, oh, okay, I don't want lettuce. And he walked away. He was about eight at this time. He walked away, and he came back about 45 minutes later, and he looked at me directly in the eyes, and I'm not altering one syllable. He said to me, I will never again allow your opinion of what I want affect what I ask for. <laughs> so I asked him to sponsor me at that point. <laughs> What's that? What the hell is that? <laughs> a couple of years after that, um, Jesse got into a schoolyard accident and he broke his wrist in a, in a growth plane, which if you know the way kids develop, it's a piece of cartilage that's going to develop in a bone. And once it gets disrupted, you can't mess with it. Once it gets set, it can't be messed with. They're brothers, so I bring them home from the hospital. They're beating the crap out of each other in about 10 minutes. And I had to let Micah know that this was not something I could repeat 11 times. It had to stop. So I got in his face and I yelled at him. He walked away from me, walked to his room, slammed so I got the dead tick going, you know. <laughs> Slam the door. So I go to the door, I open the door, and before I can unload on him, he looks at me and goes, hold it a second. I didn't say you were wrong out there. You were right about what you said. But a really big guy just got in my face and screamed and yelled at me. I didn't say you were wrong. Don't tell me I can't be mad. What's that? What the hell is that? <laughs> That's what he has watched his mother and I trying to do with varying degrees of success and failure for a couple of years at that point. To stand up for yourself and overcome a fear of confrontation and tell somebody how you feel without telling them what to do. I know how to retaliate and I'm, I'm good at it. I scream until you shut up or I cry until you shut up. Either one's fine. I love the tyranny of helplessness. Uh, I'm a loomer. I like to loom with a light behind me so I get her in a shadow. It's like total eclipse of the Jew, if I can get her right in there, right? right? And if I can work a scream, a cry, and a loom in a one, it does, it's a hat trick, man. In a one fight, I'm hitting on all cylinders then. And uh, we had to start how to learn, not how to, we, we, some people have to do this. We didn't have to learn how to not fight. We had to learn how to fight good. We had to overcome a fear of confrontation. And, and one of the ways that Nancy taught me was I was injuring my sons terribly because of my guilt and my shame. They would start to fight, and I couldn't bear them being in pain, so I'd separate them. And, uh, and, it, and Nancy would say to me, Scott, you're not letting them finish. You never let them finish. They wind up in the same place over and over again because you interrupt the process. You never give them a chance to do it. So I would sit on my hands and let them fight until they were done, argue until they were done, and they would work it out. It would be physically painful for me because I'd see an opportunity to what I thought was saving my kids some pain where I, I was blaming myself for being the source of so much agony for them. And the results were remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Um, and uh, Jesse wanted to play drums, and because of the, what the special ed lady told us to do, I went out, you know, I, I had a few booze bucks and I, I bought him a drum pad. It's a piece of wood with a piece of rubber and some drumsticks. And I was really proud of it. We were broke at the time, but I got my son something he said he wanted and I got it for him. And I went back to our home group and I, I told the guys, I was really proud of myself. And within two weeks, the AA drum set showed up at our house. There were like a lot of burnout drummers in our group at that time. So like guys are showing up with these mega death drums, you know, dude. And, uh, uh, and, and Jesse had this drum set. When he sat behind it, he, you couldn't even see him. This little tiny voice would come out behind the drums. And, um, and the same thing happened with Micah's instruments. And a couple of years ago, my sons played the House of Blues in L.A., and they burnt the dump down. They burn it down, man. They burn it up. We're in the House of Blues, which is this great nightclub on the Sunset Strip, and there's like, it's packed. There's like 900 kids. They're playing hip-hop music. Place is packed elbow to elbow. And... Uh, and, and then there's this little group of middle-aged weeping alcoholics over to the side, you know? And the, the kids are saying, what is with the crying old people? What the heck? What is that, you know? Usually they bring backup singers. Uh, and uh, it was their AA and Allen on aunts and uncles that have been following them around for years. And that's just ha what's happening in our house, you know? Um, a lot of people's uh, uh, kids are, have had tremendous problems. A lot of people have lost children in sobriety. And uh, 
One of the things that was so hurtful to me when I came, because I hurt myself with it, is I'd hear people sometimes come in and say, I've just had a child in sobriety and they'll never have to see me sober. And I'd sit in my seat and go, wow, my kids have. And it was and until I did my inventory and started making my men's, I didn't get it. I didn't get that there was that, that people whose kids didn't seem sober were no better than people whose kids had seen them sober. All I've got is my story. I'm able to help people whose kids have seen them sober in a way that has been often much more profound than people whose kids have not. You know, so I don't mind when people share it. It's just when they tend to put a premium on it. That's that's what I have a, a difficult time with. You know, because it took me a long time. To, to feel relief from that a long time. And I do feel relief from it today. Um, my, uh, I, I got to make amends to my father uh, in a really remarkable way. I, I was sponsoring a guy, and he told me if I could work it into my busy schedule that I should die and leave him alone. And uh, he, uh, he ripped some people off in AA and uh, stole some money, ripped off a car. He was making me look pretty bad. And um, I wanted to sit down and tell him what I thought of him. And my sponsor said, you know what? You don't get to do that. You so frightfully abused your right to tell people where they stand in the universe, you've lost it. You better sit down and write, I am full of blank. Ripping people off in AA look bad. Now, resentment's no big deal. It's just the source of all spiritual illness, the great destroyer of all alcoholics. It'll cut you off from the sunlight of the spirit, drag your ass out, and kill you dead. But don't be alarmed. No big thing. Work a step a year. No sweat. <clears throat> You see, because I don't dislike stuff, I hate stuff. I hate stuff with a hatred that when I wake up in the morning, I water this hatred like a little flower and I care for it. If I realize that I have forgotten to hate something for a while, I'm upset and disgusted and I feel like I have to redouble my hatred in order to make up for hatred time. I hate things in a way that when my brain, my head hits the pillow, my, it becomes a rotisserie. You know? I hate things in a way... It eats my brain and it eats my heart and it turns my life black and it throws me out of my own life. What am I going to do about that? I'm resentful of blank for ripping people off in AA and making me look bad. <laughs> what am I going to ask God to take away? The crimes? The guy? What am I asking God to take away? Blue skies. Magic wand time. God's got a magic wand and he touches me on the head. What is it in me that if God would remove the resentment would be gone? What are the defects of character in me that if God would remove the resentment would be gone? <clears throat> I'm impatient. This guy's not getting better on my schedule. I'm self-centered. I'm making this about me. I didn't rip anybody off. I, I have spiritual pride. I didn't have that till I came into AA and became a spiritual Goliath, right? How, how dare this guy comport himself thusly after coming into contact with someone of my spiritual caliber? It's hard to believe. And I'm a hypocrite. I'm a car salesman. <clears throat> so I went to my higher power and I said, Pop, please, please. Humbly ask him to remove these shortcomings. Humbly isn't, take him if you can, big guy. <laughs> Humbly isn't taking you rotten. Humbly is, pop this anymore. When I drew close to him, he revealed himself to me. Please do my work, I'll do your work. And, uh, and it was great. And uh, a couple of months after this, this guy found out he had a fatal illness and he couldn't call anybody because I guess the rest of the people in his life had told him what they thought of him. I hadn't because I had done my job in AA. And I got to be there for him when he died. And I got to hold him and I got to kiss him the way I didn't get to hold and kiss my father. And I didn't do that for my father. I did it because I was doing my job in AA. And my father came back into my life and not in a burning bush. I realized that my kids had, didn't know who my father was because I was so ashamed of myself I didn't have a picture of him in the house. And I went and got a picture of him. You know, I, My kids didn't know him because I never told stories about him because I was too scared and too ashamed. But as I, as I experienced this relief, that transition, the ice fell away from my heart and my father came back into my life. And um, that's because you, put, uh, you let me put my hand in your pocket and your, your hand was in God's pocket. Um, Nancy and I uh, have had some really difficult times in sobriety. I, I, you know, people who don't have problems in sobriety, I, I think it's great for them and I don't doubt that they're telling the truth. It, they're just not the people who I gravitate to. The people who I have gravitated to have had tremendous problems in sobriety. I've gone up to 300 pounds in sobriety. I've smoked three packs a day. What does this have to do with sobriety? Absolutely nothing unless you're going through it. Does it have anything to do with AA? Absolutely not. Does it have anything to do with sobriety? Absolutely. Because I've got resentments on myself. I've got shame. I was a 300-pound circuit speaker. The worst thing in my life was walking the 20 feet from that, that chair up to here. I hated myself. Was I still going, doing good work in AA? Absolutely. 
Absolutely, I wanted to do this so I can be happy, joyous, and free. So that I can be happy, joyous, and free, and I can be free of the defects of character that are crippling me. You know? Um, I want the whole thing. My sponsor's fond of saying a lot of people get the menu in AA and they just eat the menu. You know? That they, they don't really look beyond that. Um, I uh, was in my first year of sobriety and I was becoming sort of a spiritual Goliath and uh, I was uh, sponsoring a lot of guys. I had a, a screenwriting job for 20th Century Fox and I... Um, was offered a job to direct a situation comedy. And at that time, I really thought that if I got this job directing the sitcom, it would really benefit the guys I sponsor. Um, they would really see me, you know, this great demonstration of the power of God. It would really be good for them. And um, I didn't get the job, and I almost drank. And uh, I went to my sponsor. I was humiliated. But I didn't drink, but I almost did. And he said, you know what? You, you better, you've, you've got the show business, God. I said, What? He said, well, what's keeping you sober? I said, God. He said, so God's keeping you sober. You didn't get a show business job, and you almost drank. So I guess you have the show business God, and he has abandoned you utterly. <sighs> I'm resentful at Scott for almost drinking. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. What are the defects? I'm ashamed. I'm greedy. I'm impatient. I'm not trusting in God. I'm playing God. I had to do that 10-step. I was resentful at myself for almost drinking. I was resentful at the company for not giving me the gig. And my sponsor said, you know, Scott, when you do six and seven today on that, you better ask your God what you're going to have to do. What are you going to have to do? Now, I heard people in AA, when I got in here, people talking about God getting them into relationships, God getting them jobs, God getting them parking spaces. I said, oh, no, not the parking space, God, not the parking space. And I know parking's such a problem in South Dakota. Uh, I, I... Yikes. But what if God doesn't give you a space? You're, you know, and um, we got nailed in the Northridge earthquake really badly. I got an uh, injury in my neck and my back, and we got cream right in the epicenter. And shortly after it, we were at this AA function, and this woman who used to live in L.A., who was an L.A. expatriate, came up to me and said, geez, I'm so glad God got us out of L.A. before the quake. And I said, oh, so he likes you. He likes you. This is great. But we're crap. But he likes you. Oh, this is so terrific. And she said to me, I guess he just felt you had some lessons to learn. <laughs> I'm out of here. I don't want to have anything to do with that God. I can't stay God sober with that God for two seconds. Absolutely not. If I had a God up there saying, get him. Get the Redmond boy. Get him. No evacuation plan for you, Jew boy. Get him. Get him, turn his wife to salt, kill his goat, put a finger in his eye. Get him. Get him. I can't live in that world. I know that God is keeping her comforted. That God wouldn't keep me comforted for two and a half seconds. I would like to see her after her next lesson, but I judge no man. And apropos of my children, you know, and apropos of what I'm talking about, that's just what's happening in my house. My God expects me to do my job in AA, whether I'm living in the house on the hill or if I'm living in a refrigerator box. My God expects me to do my job in AA if my kids survive or they don't. My God expects me to do my job in AA whether or not Nancy and I are together or not. My God's not up there saying, I think you're due for a divorce. I think it'll be a bunion for you, uh, a rash over there. I just, <laughs> I, can't, I can't live in that world. It's too busy. It's way too busy for me. So that day I did what my sponsor said and I said, Pop, help me, please. Take show business. You got it. I don't care what I do for a living. I'll do anything for a living. Just keep me sober. And within three months, I was working as a cook on a catering truck. And I looked up and I said, I did not mean this. I, I'm, at all. At all. We, we have had a grotesque misunderstanding. Something happened. Something happened in the translation here that's not good. <laughs> Now, in L.A., when they make a TV show or a movie, they hire a caterer, you follow the, the, the company around. It's a great job. It's great dough. It's Teamster dough because you're on a vehicle on a movie set. But I'm Scott Redman. So the first movie I cater, the executive producer and star of the movie was a guy who I had known from the business. I had worked with him in the business. And he stuck his head on the truck that morning, and he said, Can I have a burrito? Scott? And I turned around and I said, What's happening, babe? <laughs> he said, is this your truck? I said, no, but it's my spatula. 
I went home and I called my sponsor and I said, oh, we're getting the gift now. Oh, man. It's very beautiful. It's very beautiful. The gift of sobriety is very beautiful. <laughs> I'm resentful at Scott for working on a kitchen truck. I'm resentful at the guy. Why? He was a nice guy. But I was resentful for him seeing me on the kitchen truck and the defects and reading and 10 steps and 10 steps. And, I'm going, and I wound up serving people who had been my assistant directors and my stage managers in sitcoms that I had directed. I wound up uh, serving actors who I had directed in, in, in soap operas. And every week I'd come back to my home group with a new tale of humiliation. And the guys would just go, oh! <laughs> tears streaming down their face, you know. And I got to help some guys who felt they had fallen from a height when they came in AA. They hadn't received the top rank, because there is no head drunk, contrary to some popular demand. There is no popular opinion. There is no, there is no head drunk. Some people are running, but there is no head drunk. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, they hadn't rece received the top rank in AA, which is child of God. And once you receive child of God, you can't fall. There's no place to fall from. I had a friend named Paul who had, he felt he had fallen from a height. And when he came in, he used to say this prayer. He'd say, Pop, please, I'll do anything for a living. Just keep me sober. But please don't let it be as bad as what you did to Scott. <laughs> I was so glad to help him out, you know. I cooked for about three years. Worked the 10th step. But I just didn't write and read. I used it for a lever for change. I used it to pry open my heart and, uh, and get free. Uh, it was an extraordinary experience. At the end of the three years, I was really, really becoming kind of a spiritual Goliath, sponsoring a lot of guys. Uh, I, I got contacted by a company called Catching Public Relations and, uh, for this big-time comedy job. And I thought by this time, because I had suffered so, uh, that if I got this job, this really would benefit the guys I sponsored because they had seen me suffer and now would see me prosper thusly. And um, I did a videotape for him, this kind of audition tape for him, and, uh, and my brain blew up. Before I even found out about the job, I went, I did a Yosemite Sam. I just, I, um, uh, I, I wrote about it, read it to my sponsor, prayed, meditated, got free. About two weeks later, I get a call from Ketchum that I don't have the job, I'm cool. I, right after that, I get a call from my catering company to cater to some commercials in the, in the mountains above L.A. So I get in the truck and run it out there. And um, I grab the call sheet, which is the information about the commercials. And I see that the commercials are for Ketchum Public Relations. I'm feeding them now. <laughs> now I'm feeding them. And uh, I see a guy with a videotape camera. He's taping me in the catering truck. I said, what are you doing? He said, we're taping the making of the commercial. He's taping my humiliation. And he's going to go back to New York and he's going to show him the tape and they're going to go, is that Scott Redman with the meatloaf? Is that, is that him? That poor son of a bitch. I got off work and I called my sponsor and I said, oh, we're getting the gift now. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's just a big miracle. This is a miracle. <laughs> And, he's <laughs> and he said to me, uh, I guess God had enough writers and needed a few cooks today. <laughs> and then he said, you know, Scott, you told God you wanted to work for Ketchum and you forgot to tell him what you wanted to do. <laughs> they go to like sponsorship workshops, you know, to th think this stuff up. If you're new, I want to welcome you to AA. And I want to tell you, for me, the good news and the bad news. The good news is, is that our problem mainly rests in our mind. Alcoholics Anonymous is the only, has the only text I know about recovery from a fatal illness which contains the sentence, we absolutely insist on enjoying life. There's no book about cholera that says cholera is a hoot. Uh, you'll love cholera. It's fab you'll meet other people with cholera. <laughs> Why you'll meet people who just caught cholera, it doesn't get any better than that. Also, if you're new here and you're bored, I just want to tell you my favorite boredom story about A. It's my, my favorite story about being bored in A. My old group, my home group, the North Hollywood group, um, this guy Jeff D, and he was new, and he was shifting around in his seat, and his sponsor said, what's the matter? And Jeff said, I'm bored. And his sponsor said, well, you, you know why you're bored, right? Jeff said, no. His sponsor said, you're bored because you're boring. That's why you're bored. And it like blew him away. It was like an acid moment. He went, wow, wow, man, what a cool thing to say to a newcomer. Flipped him out. So he could hardly wait till a newcomer told him that they were bored. 13 years later, 
He's 13 years sober. He's with this young lady at the North Hollywood group. She's new. She's shifting around in her seat. He says, what's the matter? She says, I'm bored. <laughs> he says, well, you know why you're bored? She said, yeah, because I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it can get cold here, can it? Alcoholics Anonymous is the only recovery from a fatal illness uh, I've ever heard of that actually leaves the sufferer in better condition than they were in before they contracted the disease. And the bad news is, is our problem. The fact that it does, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here if we didn't have, you know, this treatment. Years ago, I was talking to a newcomer at a meeting. I went home, and he uh, uh, called me, and he talked to me for an hour. And I said, uh-huh, four times, so he'd know I wasn't dead. And, um, and uh, he explained to me he had been stalking several women, and he had a restraining order out against him, but it's all different. He's 11 days sober now, and it's different now. And at the end of the, <laughs> at the, end of the hour, he, he said, I feel so alone. I said, what are you talking about? I hardly even know you, and I just listened to you for an hour without interrupting you. What do you mean you feel alone? And he said, well, I, I don't have a woman. And I said to him, what exactly would you be bringing to a relationship right now besides stalking skills? What, 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 are, you, what are you bringing to the party right now? People two, two weeks in a remission from leukemia aren't having dating problems. Alcoholics are because our problem mainly rests in our mind. When I don't treat my alcoholism, my alcoholism does not present itself as a real and present danger, as a real piece of business in my life. It goes down below the horizon. It disappears below the horizon. And it stops being a real palpable problem. And I repeat these behaviors. And I don't want to. I want to live. The treatment of Alcoholics Anonymous, the first and second step, informed by the inventory process, uh, and the incredible cycle of recovery. We have a cycle here called surrender and commitment, as opposed to the cycle of spree and remorse, will keep that alcoholism buoyed and above the horizon and present itself as a real and present problem and a real piece of business, even when I'm not thinking about it. On the shoulders of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have never had to say, I don't know, I don't know why. I don't know why I've done that again. And the things that I have, those problems, lingering problems I have, I need to get the shoulders of Alcoholics Anonymous and my higher power involved to keep them buoyed above the horizon so they present themselves as a real piece of business in my life. So I can be right in the middle of the clap, right in the middle of the second, right in the middle of the moment, right here, right now, today. The biggest gift of all. Um, some years ago, Nancy was walking through our bedroom and she knew I was talking to a new guy and she heard me say into the, into the phone, let's say the aliens are coming. So she stopped short. She ain't missing a moment of this. <laughs> I said, look, that's an outside interest. I'm not telling you the aliens aren't coming. They could very well be coming. But I have one question for you. Why you? Why have they come for you? You're two weeks sober. You have no life. Why, don't you think they'd call a cop or go to the post office? Plus, he's sleeping with the Bible on his chest to ward them off. So what are they going to do? Traverse the universe, walk into his room and go, oh no, the Bible, let's go home? <laughs> Years later, I was at my home group and the guy who, from the story, who I'm telling, walked into the room as I was telling the story and I'm watching him while I'm telling the story and he, as he's listening, he went like this. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> if you're new, I want to encourage you to take this thing as dead seriously as you possibly can and go out there and have the time of your life. If the aliens are coming for you, Welcome to AA. Welcome home. I love you. Thank you so much for having me this weekend.